Pastor Keith and I have been working alongside you through the book of James. We come now to the final chapter, and it has words of comfort and wisdom as God's word always does. And it also has words of force and indictment. Here are the words today that Pastor Keith is assigned by both the church and the Holy Spirit of God to preach this morning. They come from James chapter 5, the first verse. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the mystery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last day. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. These are the words of God for we, the people of God. Will you join with me as we pray? Oh God, our Father, as, as the chords from those beloved songs are playing now in the background, let them be the, uh, the, the very breath of our prayers this morning. For we thank you for welcoming us this time of prayer. And we thank you, Lord, for allowing our words to be influential upon your heart and ears. We come this morning before you, Lord, with humble hearts, proclaiming your love, goodness, and mercy. For you are the true God, the one God above all other gods. And we declare your power and might with one voice. You are the creator of everything that we know. And you spoke everything into the world in one being, in one moment. And for that, we praise you and give you thanks. And Lord, you've also provided the way for us to be in eternal relationship with you through the sacrifice of your beloved son, Jesus. So may our lives be a testimony to you and the gratitude that we feel because of you and because you call us your own. Lord, we praise you for the many ways that our lives intersect with yours. And we celebrate that we're able to experience your wisdom, strength, your healing and your love. And Lord, we just pray alongside uh, two that are always here this morning, Val and Al Polniak, who missed church last week because they were welcoming into the world their newest son, Tate William. We ask your blessing upon him as he grows as a child of wisdom and strength and is nourished and nurtured by this congregation. We thank you for your presence with Al and Val during those moments. And Lord, we thank you for your abiding presence with those who are hurting and need the power of your healing touch in, in their lives. Today we pray for Myrna Tweet and Barb Marcus who are hospitalized as we gather this morning. And we pray that they have felt your loving presence with them in their time of needs. And we also pray this morning, Lord, for the family and friends of John Fowler, particularly remembering his, his widow Bonnie and, and his sons Jim and John, his daughter Mary. We pray for them that you might place your loving arms of comfort and strength around them as they walk through these days of bereavement at the loss of their beloved John and give them your hope and peace in the midst of their sorrow. We ask, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the needs of those around us. Help us to see the world through your eyes of love and grace and to be your servants as we reach out to others in your mighty name. We pray that we will be open to the opportunities that you lay before us to share your love and spread the gospel of our daily lives. Lord, we pray for Pastor Keith, who comes to speak this morning, and for Natalie, who comes to testify this morning. We pray that you fill both with your overwhelming spirit of power and grace 
And that as they speak words into this microphone, they might be transformed into something powerful in our hearts and lives. All these things we lift up to you in the blessed name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. As it's uh, a day today that we are talking a lot about camp, I've invited one of our seniors from Lindmar to come and share about her experience at camp. So as soon as she puts her stuff down over there, Natalie's going to walk over here and share with us. Uh, about camp. Let's hear it for Natalie. So I'm here to talk to you guys about why camp is so important to me. Um, all the camps that are listed and that all the kids go to, I've been to almost all of them throughout the years, but the one I've gone to a lot over the years is Summer Games University. Um, that camp is so inspiring. I love going there every year, and it makes my summer the best. And um, I've built so many great friendships there, and I know I can talk to anyone at any time if I need help. And it's great as a camper because I connect, can connect with all the other campers, and it's just fun. I mean, there's great food, great preachers, great music, great everything. But then also, I've been fortunate enough to do Summer Games Junior, so I've been a counselor there. And then I also get to be a leader there. And so I get to see all these people come to God because I've had God in my life for quite a long time and some people haven't. So it's great to see that he's working in their lives and he's working in my lives. And it means a lot. And um, donating, some people, it's hard for them to uh, afford the camps because they are a little expensive, but it's totally worth it in the long run. Um, but it means a lot. And I really love these camps and they're, they make my summer the best. And I love it. Thanks. <laughs> couple things about camp. Um, one of the things that is exciting at our church is that, you know, our, our ministry to students is really growing. And just in the last year or so, our, our Wednesday night program has more than doubled. And that's brought a, a lot of kids to us that aren't from church families and aren't from families that going to church camp has been part of their tradition. So we have a, a real opportunity here, especially this summer, to bring that summer games experience or camping experience to, to a bunch of kids who've never had the opportunity to attend something like that before. Um, and, and, and we get to do that because people like you support that with your generous donations. The cost of a student to go to Summer Games University is $275, and that covers everything, which, by the way, we've, done, we've worked really hard to keep that cost lean. That's very, very uh, affordable compared to a lot of the other camps that are out there. And our church is able to provide a lot of assistance to help those students who can't afford to go, to go. So if I've, and I've had several people ask me, hey, Keith, we want to support, we want to send a kid to camp. How much does it cost? $275 per kid is what, is what the cost is. And you can make a check out to the church and put camp summer games in the memo and hand that to myself or Pastor Mike. And we'll make sure that gets to the right place. Uh, so I want to just thank you for making my job easy when it comes to that, we, we're, we're fortunate here. We don't have to spend all of our time doing fundraising and doing all this kind of stuff, which takes away from, from doing other stuff we, we, we do with ministry, because people are just generous, and they give, and they say, hey, we want to help send kids to hear about Christ at camp. That's what was important to me when I was growing up, and certainly 
I wouldn't be here in this church if it weren't for my experience directly with, with summer games and with camp. And I know, I know many others that have come to know the Lord there. And I'm telling you, it's going to be amazing. We've already got 50-some kids registered for summer games already, and we just put it on the website. So if you want to register for camp, you can go to summergamesuniversity.org, or you can also uh, get a form in the back and, and uh, fill those out as well. They're at the Welcome Center back there, and they can give them to you. So lots of great opportunities. Now, we get to move into this fun-filled, exciting text from James chapter 5. You, you saw that when Pastor Mike read it, don't you? And, and, or didn't you? And it, it, it's, it's one of these texts that, you know, pastors probably wouldn't lead with this on their, you know, if it was their choice. But I think it's important to talk about, obviously, because Jesus' little brother James thought it was important to talk about. So we're going we're gonna to jump right into this. We're going through James verse by verse. We didn't, like, plan to correspond this with the build campaign or anything like that. It's just what happened. And, and even though it can be hard sometimes in church to talk about money because everybody gets so worked up about it, I, I find that there's no place where people don't get worked up about money. So if, if, we can, if, it, if it's going to be an issue, let's make it an issue. And I say we lean into that. Jesus certainly did, as did his little brother. Now, when you look at this text, who it's addressed to, you might be tempted to say, oh, well, this isn't about me. Because it starts off by saying, now listen, you rich people. And, of course, we can look at our lives, and then we can look at the lives of other people, and we can say, oh, well, well, we're not rich. You know, I mean, there are those around us that have way more extravagant lifestyles than, than I do, or this or that. But let's back up this and look at this thing from a, from a wider perspective and understand this. Every one of us is so rich. Does every family in this room at least have one automobile to your name? Probably. If you do, you're in the upper uh, 93rd percentage of the world's wealth if you have a automobile in your, in your family. Didn't even say what kind of automobile. Pastor Mike was telling me a couple weeks ago that according to a, a, something that he saw, that 90-some percent of the world doesn't live as good as our lawnmowers do. Think about that for a second. My lawnmower lives in a nice little shed, and it's watertight. Well, until my kids broke the door off it. But, but uh, you know, I mean, we, we have these, these things, and we have all this wealth. And compared to what the rest of the world lives on, when you look at our lifestyle, we sit in a nice, heated facility in a beautiful community. We have food to eat. There's a wonderful camp breakfast downstairs. There will be no one that walks out of here hungry today because they, they didn't have the opportunity to eat. We are the rich. And James has words that we can look toward and be addressed by. And depending on where we come from, it may sting us and it may not. And, and here's what I say to that. If it stings me, then praise God. If it stings you, then praise God. Because I don't ever want to be in a situation where I only listen to scriptures that make me feel good about me. Or whatever. Because sometimes I need to hear scriptures that, that challenge me, that push me. And, and that are difficult to hear. And this is a text that for many people, it, it's one of those things that gets a little too close to home. Because when we start talking about our finances, many people shut down immediately because we have this weird idea that like the church is after our money or something like that. And we have this weird idea that if we follow Jesus that we're going to have to become dirt poor and what a horrible thing that would be. So James comments to the rich may sting us, but I want to tell you this. This isn't just about money. It's about our focus. It's about our lives 
us about our lifestyle and our sense of identity. And James is telling us that worldly riches gained unjustly absolutely do not benefit us in eternity. And he's pointing out that it's unwise and it's sinful to live for money and riches at the expense of others. But he also challenges us who put our faith and trust in our wealth that really ultimately that is going to let us down. You see, in James' day, just like in our day, there were those who lived their lives focused solely on their own pleasures and becoming wealthy so they could enjoy life and do nothing but sit back and fatten themselves for the day of slaughter, so to speak, as James says. Now, you might say, Where is James? why is James so fired up about this? James was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. So he grew up poor. He grew up in a, in a family uh, with a carpenter as a father, and it was not a wealthy trade. And undoubtedly, he heard Jesus speak about wealth because Jesus talked about that more than just about any singular subject. Now, Jesus himself, when asked about money, people came to Jesus and said, Hey, what, is it, what do I have to do to follow you? Isn't it awesome to be able to walk around and have all these crowds and everything? And Jesus himself said, Hey, look, if you're going to follow me, recognize this. I'm homeless. I don't even have a place to lay my head. To follow me is not to guarantee yourself a life of luxury and comfort. In fact, I sleep wherever I am, Jesus said. And, and some people thought that was great, and some people thought that was terrible. You see, Jesus Christ understood that it's what we do with our hearts that matter. And for many people, their hearts are so intricately linked with their finances that if you want to get to one, you have to go through the other. Timothy gives us a verse uh, in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith, and pierce themselves with many griefs. You see, when you, love more, when you love money more than you love anything else, especially when you love money more than Jesus, you're headed for trouble. You're headed for trouble. I'll give you another perspective on this. It comes from Luke chapter 12. There was this instance that takes place where someone in the crowd comes to Jesus, and he's frustrated because his brother and him, you know, are, are fighting over money. Has anybody ever have that happen in your life? You know, you ever see family members fight over money? So these brothers, he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Basically he's saying, Jesus, you know, I want more, he wants more, you fix it. And Jesus says, man, who am I? Who, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, after he's seen this conflict and turmoil that had disrupted this family. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, 
but is not rich toward God. You see, there's a difference between being a person who stores up things for themselves because they're, they're trying to be wise and, 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 and prepare for an, an emergency or disaster versus a person who simply wants to store for themselves more and more than they'll ever need and then look at their life and just say, now I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to sit back and contribute nothing to society but just instead live in excess on what I've, what I've earned. You see, there's a difference there. So, some people hear this and they say, well, I guess it must be a sin to be rich then. Is that what the Bible teaches? And I would say this, it's not a sin to be rich unless, unless. First, the first unless is this, according to James, unless your riches are acquired unjustly. Unless you've built your own personal wealth at the expense of exploiting those who, who have no other means. I, I was talking to a, a, a very wealthy person who deals a lot of, of trading in commodities and, and, and agriculture. And, and one of the ways that he earns a great deal of money is he buys land in third world countries and then is able to hire very, very cheap labor and then take the, the, the income for himself and pay them a fraction of what he'd have to pay an American worker, someone like that. Now, I'm not an expert in, you know, world economic policies and all that stuff, and maybe that's just, I don't have the first clue what it is. But it sounds to me like when you go out of your way to plan a way that you can make more money while, you know, sticking it to the guy who's actually doing the work, I don't know, that just sounds kind of sinful to me. When you go out of your way to find someone who will work for nothing because they live in a horrible condition so that you can earn more for yourself, I think you've missed the point of what Jesus is saying. And I think that's a warning that needs to be taken seriously. You see, if, you're, if your income has come at the expense of others, then yeah, absolutely. That's sinful. If you're rich, it's not a sin to be rich unless your riches are your identity. You know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. You feel like who you are as a person is defined by what you have? You know, Jesus said that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. But for many of us, it does, doesn't it? See, we as a society are, are defined by what we can buy and what we consume. A generation ago, you were defined by what you produced, by what you made. When someone said, what do you do? It's what you make. Now, these days, we're defined by what we possess, by what we buy. And, of course, our marketing gurus know that, don't they? I've talked about this before in sermons. You know, if you buy a Macintosh computer, then you're like a cool hipster dude, you know, with cool glasses, and you're, you know, whatever. If you buy a PC, then you're kind of a geeky, nerdy person who doesn't have any taste. Now, I didn't say that, so don't send me an email, okay? <laughs> but that's what we're told, isn't it true? I mean, we're told basically that, look, you can either be like, you know, a low-life person who just puts French's mustard on their hot dog, or you can have Grey Poupon, you know? Only the finer things for you, because as Mike said a couple weeks ago, you deserve it, right? Sometimes for us, we, we, we were so wrapped up in the, the label on our shirt or our shoes or what kind of car we drive or what kind of house we live in, and we feel like that's what gives us our sense of identity. Jesus says, look, that's not where your identity comes from at all. 
It's not a sin to be rich unless your riches become your idol. And what does that mean? Do you bow down before your money? Do you bow down before your possessions? Maybe not literally, but your idol is this. Anything that is in your life that you love more than Jesus, that you love more than anything else, that's your idol. What do you serve? What do you think about? What's the thing that, that takes the most of, your, that most of your focus in life? What is it that if you didn't have, you would completely fall apart without? That's when you know you have an idol. And Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. And he even applied it specifically to money. He said, look, you can't serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other. It's not a sin to be rich unless your money is your idol. And it's not a sin to be rich unless your riches blind you to the needs of others. Now, this can happen, can't it? I'll tell you just a quick story about how this happened to me lately. You know, um, <coughs> Before I moved to uh, Marion, I lived in a house that had no garage. Okay, So when I have to go work on my car outside, which I had this beat-up old nasty truck, I'd have to go outside, and my kids hated it. I, I, I'd be on the ground working on this thing, and you know, whatever little flashlight, me and my neighbor out there one night changing his starter, he's got his flashlight, and, and it was just, it was awful. You, you know, well, now I have a nicer house, I have a nice garage, and I have a nicer car. And I was at the, 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 the repair dealership getting some maintenance work done, and I love that place. It's got a nice massage chair, right? It's got a television, it's got brownies and popcorn, and I, I feel like I'm living in like luxury going in there. Matter of fact, my Valentine's date was to take my wife to the car dealership waiting room. I'm like, this is nice. There's cookies in there, you know? And, and I, I was like in this place where I'm like, this is living, you know? You know? And then when they're like, they come out and they say, uh, it's going to take a little bit longer. I'm just like, you know what? It's cool. I'm patient. <laughs> well, then I needed to go buy a part for my, or something for my motorcycle. So I went to this auto parts store. And this guy walks in. And, he, and he's, he's just dressed like, a, like Han Solo in The Empire Strikes Back, you know? And, and um, he, I mean, it's cold. And he's got all of his gear on. And, and he comes out and... He's got all this stuff to work on his brakes. And I looked at him and I'm like, please tell me you have a garage. And he's like, nope. He goes, I'm doing this in my yard, man. And I thought, oh my gosh. It was so easy for me to forget about, about that. You know, because if you're in a different spot, surrounded by different people, and you don't have to do different things like that, you can easily just let your mind go into this mode where all you are aware of is your own inconveniences and your own uh, you know, needs or whatever they might be. And sometimes your riches can blind you to the way other people have to live. And the other people survive. You see, sometimes that can happen to us. It can happen to us as individuals, and it can also happen to us as churches. We can sometimes find ourselves in a place where we become blinded to the needs of others around because of the resources that we have. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes because it's, 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 it's so important that we recognize That there are people around us who are hurting. And when it's not you, sometimes you lose sight of that. Sometimes you lose sight of that and you can find yourself in a place where you just hoard what you have and think you can take it easy. You know, my dad, who's a, a United Methodist pastor, he retired, he used to say to me when it came to church budgets, he said, no church should have dead money. And I remember saying to him, like, Dad, what is dead money? 
He said, dead money is this stash of cash somewhere in a bank account that nobody can ever touch because it's there for when all the people in the church are dead, the church can still survive. So we're not allowed to touch it, to do any ministry with it, because if it weren't for that, the church would close down. And I started thinking about that, and I'm like, wow, that's exactly what this text is talking about, isn't it? And you think, what is, what is Keith talking about? Think about this. Do you want to know what would happen if churches weren't allowed to have dead money? A lot of them would close. And I say, let them. Because here's the thing. If churches have all this money stashed away in a place so they no longer have to feel like they have to meet the needs of the community or do anything to serve the poor or do anything to, to, to reach out because they see their attendance dwindling and dwindling and dwindling because maybe they're not preaching the gospel or maybe they're not connecting with the community and the place is just getting smaller and smaller but those who are still hanging on feel like, well, you know what, it's okay because we got this money stashed away so we can keep this place going. I say that's dead money and it's sinful and that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. What good is it going to do? The fact is this. If a church can't survive because there's no resources coming in, because it's not doing the work of the gospel, in my opinion, because I believe this, that God will always resource his kingdom and always resource his work. And if he's not resourcing it, then perhaps it's because the work isn't being done. And I've seen this time and time and time again in churches all across the country. This is what James is talking about. He said, don't let it happen to you. You know what? I'm thankful that First United Methodist Church doesn't have dead money. We don't have some stash somewhere away that if the whole church were to fall apart, we could still do what we want to do, eat, drink, and be merry on a casserole in the basement. See, the fact is this. If, if, if people quit coming to the church and quit, quit supporting the church weekly, it wouldn't take long before we'd have to shut this place down. Now, there's a tremendous amount of money that flows, through this, that flows through this ministry. But you know what? There's a tremendous amount of money that flows right on out because we give it away. Did you know that, that First United Methodist Church gave away over $100,000 last year alone to the poor and needy just right around here? Some of it isn't even in our budget. It's just what comes through. It goes right out. That's more than 10% of our budget, by the way. And that does not include our, our wider mission giving to apportionments and missionaries across the the, the, the world with, through that amount of money, that that's, doesn't even count that. And there's many other things that probably could be counted in that, in, in giving as well. I, I praise God for that because I don't want to be in a museum. I don't want to work in a museum church. See, Jesus has not called us to be a dead church. He's called us to be alive. He's called us with our finances to, to never let them identify us by some bank account somewhere, he said, rather be rich toward God. You see, that's ultimately what we're called to do. But it's so easy to fall into the trap to think that your security comes from your finances and you need to hoard it away and save it for a rainy day. Now, I'm not talking about not having a savings plan or not having an emergency fund. I'm, not, I'm for all of that stuff. What I'm talking about is when you feel like your security and trust is so rested on your own finances that you can't give any of it away because it would be like giving your heart away. So how do you know? 
How can you tell if money is your idol? Three things, simply. First one is this. Can you live without it? Your idol is anything in your life that if it were taken away from you, you would disintegrate. And that could be anything in your life. That could be your job. That could be your hobbies. That could even be your family. That could be something about yourself that you like to do. But at most, for most of us, it's our money. And if it were taken away from us, how would we survive? I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently who just, he's, he's struggling with that. He just lost a job. He's like, what are we going to do? And he said to me, you know what? It's going to be okay. Because my family and I have each other and we have Jesus. And we have a church. So whatever happens, happens. Think about yourself for a moment, though. What would happen if everything you owned suddenly went to vapor and you had nothing? Now, maybe some of you have already been there. You know, maybe some of you have had that happen in your life. I don't know. I, I kind of have had that happen to me. And it's not easy, but I can tell you this. I've never felt closer to God than when I absolutely needed God for every single thing in my life. And that's the point. You see, if you can't live without it, you're in trouble. Do you use what you have to help others? Ask yourself that question. When a resource comes into your life that's more than what you need, do you view the excess as being available for you to spend on yourself, or do you view that excess as being available to give or to serve or to help the needs of the community or someone around you? There's a group of us that are, are headed to Haiti in a couple of weeks. And we met at my house last night, and we, we met there to collect our supplies, because we're each allowed to bring, like, our regular suitcase, and then we can bring one other suitcase of stuff that we're to bring for this orphanage that we're working with down there. And that's all stuff we're going to leave down there. We need school supplies, we need, we need uh, diapers, we need formula, there's a, there's a whole list of things that we need. Now, you've heard me sort of talk about this trip a little bit, but not a whole lot. And, and you haven't heard me stand up here and say, hey, here's what we need for our trip, school supplies diapers, formula. You want to know why I haven't said that to you? Because I wouldn't know where to put all of it if I did. Because that's just who you are. That's just who we are as a church. And it's exciting for me to know that, hey, if I put that word out, we're going to be inundated. So I had to kind of keep it on the down low this time. Now we're going to be getting back and then we'll be taking more teams down there and more trips and taking more stuff. So you'll have your chance, I promise. But isn't that cool? I think it's awesome, by the way. Because I've been places before where you'd have to go pound the doors down for people to do anything to help. Do you help? Do you use what you have to help others? We need to be a church that continues to do that. We need to be people as individuals that when something, a resource comes into our life, just as quickly as it comes in, it gets passed to someone who's, who needs it. <clears throat> and then thirdly, do you surround yourself with only people just like you? You know, when you, when you have the, the luxury of being able to go to the car dealership and eat the cookies and sit in the massage chair and watch Rachel Ray cook something on TV at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you can sometimes forget about what other people have to go through. I'll tell you what, never let your money put you into a category of life where you can't surround yourself with people who aren't as well off as you. You've got to watch that temptation, don't you? Because sometimes we can get put in that mindset I'm thinking, oh, well, I've arrived here, and everybody else is here. Or I'm striving to be here, and everybody else is here. That is not the way our Lord calls us to live. He was a friend of the poor. He was a friend of sinners. Jesus Christ himself was poor. So essentially what James is saying is this. 
be rich toward God. If you're rich, and we are, use our riches to worship. Use your wealth to worship. I think of the woman in Mark 14 who had that expensive wealth, uh, that, that jar of wealthy perfume. And when she had an opportunity to, to meet with Jesus, she dumped all of it on his head. She didn't say, well, I'll give him a little bit and save the rest for later. She said, here's my chance. This is my opportunity to, to serve Jesus with what I have. I'm going all in. That's the attitude that we need to have because we won't always have an opportunity. So when the opportunity comes to us, let's use it extravagantly to bless God. Because what's the alternative? To walk away from Jesus? You know the story? I think it's Mark 14, or Mark 10, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Hey, keep all the rules, right? You know them. He says, Of course. I'm a good church boy, Jesus. I don't, I don't break any of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, Awesome. You need one more thing. Sell all you have, give to the poor, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. What an invitation! To, to be one of Jesus' physical disciples. And this man went away sad because his wealth had covered his heart so much. See, he was a good religious boy. He knew all the church stuff. He did all the church things. But his heart was still captured by his money. You see these banners up here. You know, when you join the church, you make a promise to give your prayers, your presence, your witness your service, but also your gifts. And there's some people that want to give everything else, but when it comes to their money, they say, I'm hanging on to that. I had a conversation with a lady one time who, who told me, well, my husband and I have decided that we just can't afford to give to the church financially, so we choose to volunteer instead. And I said, oh, so that means when you took your membership vows, you left out the part about your gifts? That didn't apply to you? You have a special clause in there. It says you don't have to do that. You see, some people want to be real generous with everything but. My question is why? Usually the answer is, because I don't have enough trust in God to let go of that thing which is most precious to me. Because that is my idol. You know, I don't care, like I've said before, how much money you give to the church. What I care about is does your heart belong to Jesus? Because what I know is this. If your heart belongs to Jesus... If we have a congregation filled with people whose hearts belong to Jesus, we will never have anything other than what the Lord wants for us. We will lack nothing because God will provide. It's your heart that matters. That's what's important. I heard a sermon once from uh, Rick Warren. He was talking to a bunch of pastors. And I'll close with this. Rick Warren's the guy who's the pastor of... Uh, Saddleback Church out in California. It's this ginormous church of about 500 bajillion people. And I've been there. It's like Christian Disneyland. There's palm trees, there's fountains, it's ab there's no snow anywhere. It's, it's, it's paradise. And I, I heard Rick Warren preach to a bunch of pastors once, and he, he, he was talking about money. And he talked about, people, oh, you know, people think that it's so easy being this big, rich, mega church pastor, you know. And he said, let me tell you a little bit about my, my philosophy towards my finances, because this book that he wrote, Purpose Driven Life, you guys have read that book? It's, it's made for him personally tens of millions of dollars. And he said, you know, my biggest fear was that that was going to affect me. So my wife and I made this decision that we were not going to change our lifestyle at all when this book was written. So he said, we still live in the same house that we lived in before we wrote the book. 
I drive the same car that I drove before I wrote the book. And he goes, and I bought this watch here at Walmart. He goes, I haven't let that, that change me at all. He goes, another decision that I made. He goes, and honestly, this is why I feel God blessed me with the ability to write that book. He said, when we got married 30-some years ago, we made a commitment as a family that every year we were going to increase our percentage of giving. Every year. We started with 10%, and every year that we've been married, we've added to that. Some years when it was really tough and it was really lean, we could only add a, a, a fraction of a percent. Some years we were able to add more. He's like, I've got a 35-year track record of always giving more. How about you? And, and these pastors were floored. You know, I was floored. He said he was asked by a Time Magazine article writer about, you know, what he does with all of his money and, and, and how much he makes at the church. Oh, yeah, well, what's your salary, Pastor Warren? That'll get you. He says, I'm, I'm honored to tell you that I've served this church faithfully for 25 years for nothing. He said, because I haven't taken a salary in years. And I calculated when the money from the book started rolling in, I calculated how much money I'd been paid by the church since the beginning of the church, which she started, by the way, with nothing. He said, and I paid it all back. And he said, oh yeah, currently my wife and I, he said, we, we give, it's like 96% of our income and live on the 4%. You know? See, you're, you can have tons of resources and tons of money. It doesn't have to have you. Or you can have very little and be consumed with it. The point is this, whatever riches you have, they weren't given to you to use on yourself. They were given to you by God to bless others. So may you do that. May I do that. May we as a church always keep that close to our heart. May we always walk with one hand open to receive from the Lord and one hand to give to this world and to give to the needs of our world because that's why we're here. That's why God made us. That's why he created First United Methodist Church. It wasn't for us to sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. It was so that we could do the work of the kingdom of God to make disciples and transform the world. That's our mission. And I praise God that we're seeing it happen. And I praise God that we're just scratching the surface of what he wants to do in our hearts.